have the delight this morning of having Commissioner Lynn B. Cawthorn to be our speaker. Mr. Cawthorn is the managing partner of the Cawthorn Financial Group, uh, LLC, a financial advisory firm with offices in Shreveport and New Orleans. He has 20 years of professional experience in banking, finance, investments, and business consulting. Mr. Cawthorn is a graduate of Booker T. Washington High School, Dillard University, Troy University, and the American Institute of Banking. Mr. Cawthorn has been an adjunct professor at Dillard University, Southern University in New Orleans, and Southern University in Shreveport. He taught risk management, investments, and introduction to business. In addition to his vast background in business and industry, Mr. Cawthorn has a great passion for the local community and improving it. He serves as board president of Christian Services, board member of the Walk-On's Independence Bowl, founding member of the To Win Group, which is Together We Win Network, and chairman of the State of Black Shreveport Symposium and Economic Summit. Mr. Cawthorn was first appointed to the Caddo Parish Commission in July of 2015 to serve the unexpired uh, term of the then District 6 Commissioners. In October of 15, he was elected to serve a full four years on the commission and is still in the middle of that. He's the father of two children, Tatiana and Tylan, and enjoys a loving relationship with his companion, Miss Keisha Simmons. We are very glad to have the commissioner with us this morning. Will you help me welcome him? Good morning. I definitely deem it a pleasure to be here at the All Souls Unitarian Church. Uh, wow. Minister Jarrell was reading my bio. Uh, I was almost wondering who is that she's talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it sounds a, it, it sounds a lot different when you're hearing it audibly as opposed to putting it on paper. So I want to thank you for the kind introduction and the pleasure of being here today. And often when I think about the Unitarian Church, and it's so apropos that she mentioned uh, Minister James Reed and uh, Valerie Louisa. Because as a high school student and a college student, I often heard those names that the Unitarian pastor was killed in Selma during the uh, demonstration down there. And uh, so it's just good to be amongst history and an organization that fights for social justice. As it relates to my comments today, I hope they will be like the, the, a woman's skirt, long enough to be respectable, short enough to be interesting. <laughs> If you will, you get your Bibles out and turn to Luke, the 11th chapter, the 29th verse through the 34th verse, a very familiar passage we will read. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him 
and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he, when he was at the place, came and looked at him and passed on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, bound him up, his wounds pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his beast, and brought him to the inn, and took care of him. For a little while today, I want to talk about David. They left me for dead, and with a subtext in search of justice, equality, with compassion. As we consider being left for dead, I'm, I am hastened to think about the groups of people around the planet that are seemingly left for dead. Let's first consider our brothers and sisters in Sub-Saharan Africa, mired with hunger, starvation, and AIDS while living in the most resource plentiful continent on the planet, but they seem to be left for dead. I'm often thought about our kids in America, often left behind in failing schools, while simultaneously living in the richest nation in the planet, America. I'm also wondering, and it brings me to my mind about the millions of people who are uninsured in America, while Congress debates and continuously proposing to take additional and eliminate additional people from the, Medicare, the, the medical roles, all with a mantra of all lives matter as a backdrop. I'm perplexed. And I'm also concerned that's brought to my attention when I think about the working class and middle class people of America whose wedges have been flat since 1980 while 1% of America controls almost 90% of all the wealth in America. These people seem to be left for dead. In our search for justice, equality, and compassion, these groups, these groups are left behind, and you hear the cry and plea on a daily basis. I often suggest that this is tantamount of dying from thirst while being in walking distance from an oasis of water. We must consider this. We must ponder this. We must be concerned about brothers and sisters who, who live on a planet and live in a country plentiful with resources, but people feel left for dead. As we go to our parable today, we find Jesus explaining to the man that poses the question that the Good Samaritan was a good man, and I would suggest he was a great man why? Because he had the capacity to consider his brother. Now, in this very familiar scripture, we often go to our imaginations as to contemplate what the priest and the Levite may have been thinking and why they didn't stop to help the man wounded on the side of the street, on the road, that is. And I say, and I say that Maybe they were busy men on their way to a religious service and they couldn't stop to help the man because they couldn't be late. They was leaving from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
I further suggest that perhaps maybe in the Jewish custom, because of the ceremony that they might have been on their way to, that they couldn't touch a human flesh to interrupt the ceremony that they, was gonna head, they were headed to. But I tell you what, my imagination tells me that these men were afraid. Yes, they were afraid. And so you have to understand in the days of Jesus that the Jericho Road was a dangerous road. You know, as a matter of fact, it was a winding, meandering road, conducive for ambush. So in, in Jerusalem, you start off on the Jericho Road at about 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you meander down to Jerusalem, I mean to Jericho, about 15 or 20 minutes later, you're 2,200 feet below sea level. So, so it's, a, it's a dangerous road. And in the days of Jesus, it was often referred to as the bloody, the bloody path. So it is possible that the priest and the Levite looked over to the man and wondered if this is a setup. Were the robbers still there? And was this going to be a scenario by which once they go to get, render help to this man, that the robbers will seize them and do to them that the same thing they did to the man left on the side of the road. But the priest and the Levite asked the question, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But when the Good Samaritan comes by, he reverses the question. He says that if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And so my brothers and sisters today, as we are in search for justice, equality, and compassion, we must ask the question that people who seem to be left for dead, if we don't stop to help those people, what will happen to them? There are so many people that we find in our community that we, that question needs to be posed to. We need to look at the groups of people for justice of the unarmed men shot by the police. People like Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray. If we don't stop to help those people in that scenario, what will happen to them? I'm also brought to my attention as it relates to immigration reform and the dreamers. People literally born in America, almost with the risk of being deported. If we don't stop to help those people, what will happen to them? And I also continue in a very modern day context as we look at the LGBT community whose whose thrust has been most recent and who fight every day for equality in their struggle. If we don't stop to help those people, what will happen to them? And very seriously, when we look at our women who are battered, sex slaves, sex trafficking, uh, uh, thrown out of their houses, afraid to say anything, in a modern day context, if we don't stop to help them what will happen to that group of people? That's the question that's before us today. I often tell people, you cannot talk about justice, equality, and compassion without mentioning Martin Luther King Jr. I know most people are familiar with his, his speech in 1963 when he went to Washington 
I have a dream. But that's not my favorite speech. My favorite speech that Martin Luther King did is the I've been to the mountaintop, which is his last speech of his life given February, I'm sorry, April 3rd, 1968 at Mason's Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin said, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. What was it that Martin Luther King saw? In the context of his life, what did he look over in the mountain and see? And I suggest to you what he saw was the, was the freedom, was the cry for freedom and equality around the world. So you understand that King died in 68. And so the drumbeat for freedom was happening on the African continent at the time. At the time when he sojourned through the whole civil rights movement. He saw the Patrice Lumumba in the Congo throw the Belgian people out of Africa. He saw that he saw that the Africans on the African continent threw Europe out of Africa so they could claim their own country they were going to raise there. He saw the drum beat for freedom around the world. What else did he see? He also saw that people who were poor no longer wanted to be poor. Do you guys remember the Shah? The Shah in Iran had he and his cronies had everything while everybody else had nothing. Do you remember the Duvalier brothers? Duvalier brother and son, I mean father and son in Haiti? Papa Doc and Baby Doc? While they cronies controlled everything, most of the people didn't have anything. And I know you remember that lady in the Philippines with all those shoes. Boppers. She and her coins controlled everything while the masses of people had nothing. So that became, that was a drumbeat for justice. People that were poor were tired of being poor. And it came to America in the early 2000s called Occupy. When the people ran on Wall Street and said that 1% took control, 90% of all the wealth in America, it came right to our shores. So Martin Luther King looked over the mountain and saw justice. And that was his pursuit. He also saw in his lifetime the desegregation of lunch counters and Southern African Americans in the South being allowed to vote without any restrictions. He also saw, he also brought a half million people to Washington, D.C. to protest for jobs and freedom. And if that was one thing that Martin Luther King knew, that there's nothing more American than protest, whether it's the American Revolutionary War, the Boston Tea Party, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, and most recently, the battle that our LGBT community has been moving forward. There's nothing more American than protest, than the right to stand up for what you feel is right. And also remember now that Martin brought everybody to Washington, D.C. He just didn't bring African-Americans. He, he brought the Afro-black. He brought the long-haired hippie. He brought the Jewish rabbi. He brought the Native Americans. And as uh, Barbara mentioned earlier today, the Unitarian, the people of the Unitarian Church who just happened to be white people, he included everybody. And what that reminds me of is Langston Hughes' poem, America has never been America to me. You guys familiar with that? I'm the poor white 
pulled and pushed apart. I'm the Negro bearing slavery scar. I'm the red man forced from the land. I'm the immigrant seeking to the hope I seek, but only to find the same old stupid plan a dog to eat dog and mighty crush the weak. Oh, yes, America's never been America to me. But with this vow, I do pledge that America will be. And why is America will be? Because it's immigrant folks, it's darker skinned people, it's, it's immigrants that have come to this land have demanded that America opens up its freedom that it bounds in the Constitution to everybody. Whether it's the black and the African American. Whether it's the African American in the civil rights movement. Whether it's our Latino brothers that fought for with Chavez, Chavez in California for equal right, equal pay, and where they worked at, whether it was the Native American that demanded that they were here first and this and the land that you took from them should be reclaimed. America is the greatest country on the planet because people who wants to come here see that you can protest and you can force this country who sometimes we get it wrong, but when you stand up and you, and you force America to expand its liberties to everybody, that's what makes this country great. That's what makes people want to come off of boats and swim offshore to come to America. That's, that's nothing more American than the right to protest, than the right to stand up for what you believe is right, and the right to seek justice in a country that hasn't always administered justice, equality, and compassion in an equitable fashion. But I'm so glad, and I'm so thankful that our Christian brothers and sisters of all walks of life and all nationalities had the courage, the fortitude, to stand up and say, this is wrong. While Martin Luther King is one of my favorite heroes, he sacrificed his life, dying at age of 39, to stand up for what he felt was right and to expand the freedoms of America. I often tell people that in this current protest that we see with the people in the NFL about kneeling at the flag and kneeling at the anthem. And people who may differ with me and who may conflict, people who may differ with me on that issue, I bring them to the core of what the protest is about. The protest is not about not wanting to stand for the flag, not wanting to be patriotic to America. The first person to die in the American Revolutionary War was an African American, Christopher Adams, from Barbados. First person to die. The African-American family, the African-American people have fought in every war in America and have come back to America and not be afforded the opportunity other people were afforded. So it's not about patriotism. It's about bringing attention to what we feel is sacred to get your attention and to get people's attention as to what we want to create better in America. And I often tell people it's not about disrespecting the flag. It's not about singing the anthem. Because we can get into the whole conversation that the third stanza of the anthem, what, what if you ever, we only, we only sing the first verse of the anthem. But if you get down to the third verse, you see what I'm alluding to. But even in unfairness, even in not being, uh, or being always included into the American fabric, the ethnic groups of America have stayed patriotic to this country, which again, I said, makes America the country that it is. And lastly, I want to share this with you. Barbara mentioned earlier that I'm a part of a group called Two Win. Together We Win Network. 
And what we do with that group, we meet every Wednesday. I'm sorry, the second Wednesday of every month at the downtown Holiday Inn. It's a breakfast meeting. And what we do, we discuss race relations right here in the city of Shreveport. And for the last month or so, we've been reading this book, or probably two months or so, we've been reading this book called Waking Up White by Debbie Irvin. And they say, well, and, and, and I should share, that Waking Up White happened to several people in this building today. You'll get that on the way home. <laughs> but at any rate, it is important that our white brothers and sisters understand the importance of the role that you guys play, that they play in the American society. King, King said that ultimately, the tragedy is not oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but it's the deafening silence of the good people. And so, there's a chapter in the book that's entitled, From Bystander to Ally. And as Barbara mentioned earlier, when she talked about Valerie Louisa and uh, the Unitarian preacher, uh, Jay Reed, that you can't stand on the sideline when injustice is being perpetrated, when injustice is all around you. I understand that as a, as a white American, that's some uncomfortable in talking about the past. That's some uncomfortable in talking about race relations. But for us to achieve equality, justice and compassion in the American context, we need your help. First and foremost, the white community in America represents 73% of the world's population, of, of, of America's population. So what does that mean? That means that when important things are discussed, whether it be hiring practices in an organization, whether it be developing policies, or whether it be someone saying an off-color racist joke, our white brothers and sisters are usually at the table. And so at that chance, you have the opportunity to be a bystander or to be an ally. But we go back to the question asked by the Good Samaritan and the priest and the, and the Levite. If I don't stand up, what will happen? And I will, I will suggest to you that, that my white brothers and sisters who don't want to be a, out on the front line protesting, who don't want to be... Uh, in, in the different type of protest things that can happen, that's a very subtle way you play a role in what we do. The next time you're at a party, someone tells an off-color joke, it's very easy when you don't understand the, American, the, the human psyche. Someone tells an off-color joke, you reply, I know a lot of African-Americans. If it's a joke about an African-American, I think that's just tasteful. And you think about how that person will respond. Instantly with shame. And you... And what you just done in that particular situation is monumental. Because what you have said, you pose the question is, how does these actions affect my community? For us to live harmoniously in America or in the world, everyone plays a role. And I like to solicit my white brothers and sisters to be a, to not to be a bystander, but to be an ally. We often talk about the the, the platitudes of America and how great we are. But like I said earlier, what has made America great is our constant redefining of what it means to have the freedoms in America. And I'll leave this with you. When America was first established, and you look at the painting of the founding fathers, 
That's one indelible thing that's, that's painted in your mind that has persisted for years. They were all male, they were all white, and they were all landowners. And what, and what the darker races or the immigrants who come to America, what they have strived to do is to change the outline of that picture. To add some color into it, to add some females into it, to add some people who may not be rich. And as, and, and as a result, you get the America that's printed in, in the book. You bring it to life. They say, well, but America is but a dream. Yes, it is. But how do we make it a reality? We take that picture of the founding fathers, we repaint it. We add in, we add in the black man, we add in the Hispanic, we add in the female, we add in the people of the gay and lesbian community. We add in people who may not be extremely rich. We add in people who are, who are fresh off the boat but are coming to America to thrive. And the dream of America becomes the reality of America. And today, I just want to leave that with you. If you go home and you think about anything I've said today, you remember that most people in America are patriotic. Most people in America love America. But America has to be true. America has to do what it says on paper. It has to be in reality. Thank you guys for your time. God bless you. God keep you. This is my prayer.